0: I want to begin with three simple words that are three awesome words, almost indescribable words that are used in the Bible to describe Jesus, and there are these three words, quoting the apostle Peter who knew Jesus so well, because he cares. Because he cares. The real Jesus, the authentic Jesus, the Jesus of history, the Jesus of the Bible, the Jesus of genuine Christianity is the Jesus who cares. And this morning we're going to focus our attention on the Jesus who cares. And we're going to do that in Luke chapter 13. And if you have a Bible, I hope you're ready to be able to be impressed with, to be encouraged by, to be challenged by the Jesus who cares. And as we look at Luke 13, 10 to 21 this morning, and we look at the Jesus who cares, we're going to be able to highlight seven actions that He takes because He cares. Seven actions that Jesus takes because He cares. There are seven actions, historical actions, but there are also seven actions that we are holding on to dearly even today as we worship our great Savior, Jesus. Let's begin by reading the text, though. Luke chapter 13, the Gospel of Jesus, according to Luke, verses 10 to 21. Be encouraged now as we hear God's Word. Now, He was teaching in one of the synagogues on the Sabbath. And behold, there was a woman who had a disabling spirit for 18 years. She was bent over and could not fully straighten herself. When Jesus saw her, he called her over and said to her, Woman, you are freed from your disability. And he laid his hands on her, and immediately she was made straight, and she glorified God. But the ruler of the synagogue, indignant because Jesus had healed on the Sabbath, "...said to the people, there are six days in which work ought to be done. Come on those days and be healed, and not on the Sabbath day. Then the Lord answered him, You hypocrites, does not each of you on the Sabbath untie his ox or his donkey from the manger and lead it away to water, to water it? And ought not this woman, a daughter of Abraham, whom Satan bound for eighteen years, be loosed from this bond on the Sabbath day?" And he said, as he said these things, all his adversaries were put to shame and all the people rejoiced at all the glorious things that were done by him. He said, therefore, what is the kingdom of God like? And to what shall I compare it? It is like a grain of mustard seed that a man took and sowed in his garden and it grew and became a tree and the birds of the air made nests in its branches And again He said, To what shall I compare the kingdom of God? It is like leaven that a woman took and hid in three measures of flour until it was all leavened. We'll stop there and now take a closer look. Because Jesus cares, number one, He teaches. Because Jesus cares, that seems to be the overall thrust of the whole encounter. Because He cares, He teaches. Action number one, because he cares, he teaches. This might not be the first one we think of. We might, even if we didn't look at the whole context, we might think, uh, as we're making a list, because he cares, hmm. We might say he heals, he restores, but we probably aren't going to say he teaches. But I would suggest to you, given the bigger picture, it would be good to think in terms of, because he cares, he teaches. It even reminds me of another occasion when uh, it says the people were like sheep without a shepherd. And Jesus had compassion on them. He, he cared for them. And so he taught them. So we already know from other contexts that Jesus' compassion, Jesus' care for people leads him to teach them. And here in this occasion, he's caring for them. He's, he's teaching them. And we certainly see that in verse 10 where he's teaching in one of the synagogues on the Sabbath. So at first blush, we might think that's, that's not necessarily an act of compassion, but other contexts would have us to know that it is, and I think our context would draw us to that conclusion also. Who is Jesus? Well, He needs to make that known to people, and so He teaches. That shows care. Uh, who, who are these people? Well, these people are people who are, who are in need of rescuing They're in need of a sure hope of atonement and resurrection. They're the people who have been waiting for deliverance from that long ago, beforehand promised deliverer, Messiah Christ. And he's connecting the dots for them, showing them, I am the one. Surely that's an act of care. He cares for them so much, he's showing them who he really is. We earlier saw in one of these synagogue accounts, when he opened up the scriptures with them, that he demonstrates who he is. And we'll look a little closer at it a little bit later. Luke chapter 4, perhaps we'll have time to go there, where he connects the dots. Here's who Isaiah said the Messiah would be and what the Messiah would do, and I want you to know that I'm him. He cares. He cares enough to tell the truth. He cares enough to tell the truth. Even two people who seem to be being misled by religious leaders... So he shows them, I'm, I'm him. In that sense, there could be nothing more caring because that's going to lead to something that will matter forever. He cares, so he teaches. He cares about the glory of God, so he teaches. He cares for the divine intent of Scripture, so he teaches. He cares for them, so he teaches. Now, as we'll see, and as we already said and re- saw in reading it, it does lead to conflict, the teaching. In some circles, in some senses, people would say he taught and so it shows he didn't care. Sometimes we're even prone to think, well, I like the silent Jesus better. He seems to be the more caring Jesus. When we have it exactly opposite, upside down. He always speaks the truth. He's not like Satan. The father of lies he always speaks the truth and he cares so much he wants people these people people like you and people like me to not have to wonder who he is to to be left in idolatry and define him however we want to define him he cares so much that he speaks and again in light of luke chapter four he's not just speaking in generalities he's not just teaching in generalities Uh, So far, what we've seen, when he's in the synagogue and he's teaching, he's showing something about himself. Here's who I am. So by way of application, think of terms like this. Jesus cares so much about people like you and people like me that he teaches the truth about himself from the Scriptures so that we're free, so that we can know, so that we can have assurance, so that we can have confidence. I just love those words of Peter when he says in 1 Peter, because he cares. Even the hard words of Jesus, and for some people would have found these to be hard words, because he cares. He teaches. Let's move to another action that he takes because he cares, because Jesus cares. Number two, he restores. He restores. This is sort of the easy one, if you will, as far as recognizing that it's an act of care. In verse 11, behold, there was a woman who had had a disabling spirit for 18 years. She was bent over and could not fully straighten herself. When Jesus saw her, he called her over and said to her, Woman, you are freed from your disability. And he laid his hands on her, and immediately she was made straight. And she glorified God. You don't need me to tell you that that's an act of care. Of, of compassion. Of, of kindness. Of genuine mercy. Even more so when we see the greater setting where there are people who don't really care. and Jesus cares. He cares for her. He cares for her personally, not just as a people group, not in some sort of distant way. No, Jesus, the esteemed teacher who taught like no one else, according to Matthew chapter 7, He he cares for her and He heals her, this hopeless, helpless woman. In a sense, it's Jesus caring to restore her, even beyond her, because He's caring for the rest of us, He's caring for everyone else who's there because He's giving us a, a, a foretaste. He's giving us a glimpse, once again, into who He is. Why would I say that? How, why would I say, this, this cares for all of us, this personal care for this woman, because it shows us clearly, objectively, historically, that He cares for us. He cares for us once again enough to show us that he really is the deliverer, that he really is the Messiah, that he really is the long-expected one prophesied in the Old Testament. He really is the ultimate David. He really is the ultimate Messiah, the ultimate Christ. Well, I'm going to go back and go back to Luke chapter four. You can go there if you'd like, you don't need to, but back to Luke chapter four when he's in the synagogue setting precedent showing care but we know based upon what he does for this woman that he's none other than the long ago mentioned promised deliverer messiah in luke chapter 4 verse 17 it says and the scroll of the prophet isaiah was given to him so similar kind of setting he unrolled. It, he unrolled the scroll and found the place where it was written, "The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because He has anointed me." Uh, maybe we can put it this way: He has anointed me. He has messiahed me. He has christed me, because Christ is the anointed one. Messiah is the anointed one. It's the the the, the special designation on the one. Okay. He has anointed me to proclaim good news, good gospel news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives. And recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed. See, it's this healing thing, it's restoration, it's the undoing, the reversing of the the effects of the fall, if you will. He's going to come and be the ultimate deliverer, even in a physical sense. Verse 19 says, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And he rolled up the scroll and gave it back to the attendant and sat down. And the eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed on him. And he began to say to them, today this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. Jesus cares, historical action, so he restores, but there's a whole lot under that because he's the restorer. And so here, how about this even? On this historic occasion where no one in this room got immediate benefit, I would suggest to you he's showing care for us because he's demonstrating tangibly that he really is the one aforementioned by Isaiah connecting the dots demonstrating he really is the one and that's what gave everyone there and everyone here a foretaste he's the one he's the one he's he's the one who I have confidence in that I will have physical restoration one day as sure as he's been raised from the dead One of our great hopes as Christians reconciliation with God and full blown reconciliation on all levels no more death, no more suffering, no more pain, no more tears. And when Jesus was on earth, He showed it, He revealed it as clear as could be that He really is the one. So our confidence isn't in mere speech, speech backed up by actions. Isn't it good? man, I don't know what you guys do not being preachers. (laughs) It's awesome. It's amazing too that we can read our Bibles this way and we should read our Bibles historically because this is history. But actually this history is meant for us to see that he really is the one. And you say, well, how does that apply to my life? Just let me let me just insult you just for a second. I can't resist if you say How does this apply to my life? You, you, you I kind of want to go You know, is anybody home? Um, world is filled with suffering is filled with pain filled with fear filled with death The application is so obvious and so stark that we're, we're busy searching for trivialities when it comes to application Yeah, but how does this help me get a promotion? (laughs) Ultimately, you're not going to care. He deals with the greatest issues of all. And and we spend our time grappling for trivialities, even though some things in life are important. Don't get me wrong. Jesus addresses the most important thing of all, and and we, we can't lose sight of that. A foretaste of what will one day last forever. And by the way, he's not unpacking it here, but all of these things are are brought to fullness and fruition. Um, I call these foretastes because when he returns, we have resurrected bodies, lasting forever bodies. These are glimpses, kingdom glimpses, if you will. Let's move on now to number three. Because Jesus cares, he provokes and exposes Let's take a vote. Should we call them phonies or fakers? Who wants to call them phonies? That's what I put in my notes. Who wants to call them fakers? I like the word fakers too. It's a good abendroth growing up word. He provokes and exposes phonies or fakers, whichever whichever one you want to call them. He cares enough to do that. Again, they wouldn't have thought that was very caring, but people who were benefited would have thought it was very caring. How about verse 14? The ruler of the synagogue. He's the one in charge indignant because Jesus had healed on the Sabbath, said to the people, there are six days in which work ought to be done. Come on those days and be healed and not on the Sabbath day. (sighs) You know, he cares. And and by the way, not as if you could come on the other days and get healed unless Jesus is there. I mean, it wasn't like, well, all the other days we've been doing this. Um, He's not suggesting that. He's saying you would come on the other days and have Jesus here and then maybe you'd be okay. But it's not okay here. It's not okay now because it's Sabbath. I want to ask you a question. Would the synagogue leader and his partners in crime, the other leaders, would they have had Bible verses to quote to argue their case? Absolutely, they would have had Bible verses to quote to argue their case. We're going to talk about abusing scripture in a moment. But just for now, let's know they would have legitimate, good, clear, important Bible verses that they could have quoted. But Jesus is still going to expose, not the verses, but he's going to expose them as phonies, as fakers. And, and he's doing that for the people's benefit, for, for our benefit. Deuteronomy chapter 5 verse 12, observe the Sabbath day, it's the day of rest, observe the Sabbath day, God says and know in no uncertain terms, to keep it holy as the Lord your God commanded you, six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God, on it you shall not do any work, Rest day. To keep the Sabbath day. Bible verses. Real verses. Important verses. And so the leaders of the synagogue could have said, We've got verses. And Jesus exposes them as phonies. Because in verse 15, then we read, Then the Lord answered him. Luke's being deliberate here in his describing the narrative for us. He often calls him Jesus. He doesn't call him Jesus here. The ruler of the synagogue. He was just talking about the Lord of the synagogue. And now he says, The Lord said. So who's really in charge? It's going to be Jesus. Point of contrast, I think intentionally. It says, You hypocrites. We might think he would say, You hypocrite, because he's addressing the leader. But he's not alone. So whoever uh, can wear the shoe should take this by way of application. It's always the application part that gets you in trouble. Does not each of you on the Sabbath untie his ox, or his donkey, from the manger, and lead it away to water? Put your finger there just for a second, if you would. See, God's law even said let the animals rest. But He says now, let's think about this. Um, do you do you care for your animals? which involves some effort on your part. And by the way, if you have to move them, it involves some effort on their part. Verse 16 then says, And ought not this woman, a daughter of Abraham? Let's start by, Ought not this woman, notice the contrast. Animals are cared for. Woman created how? How? In the image of God, this woman is created in the image of God. So we're going to care for the animals, but not this woman who's made in the image of God. Ludicrous, crazy, perverted and twisted. He's exposing them as fakers. Then we keep going, a daughter of Abraham. Oh, not only is she made in the image of God, this woman, she also is a daughter of Abraham, which means she's a Jew, which means she's part of God's chosen nation abrahamic promises abrahamic covenant and whom satan bound for 18 years oh let's make a little further point of connector here by doing what you do you're on whose team you're playing for the wrong team buddy what you support is supporting satan in the name of god this is crazy bound for 18 years She should be loosed from this bond. Notice again, Jesus is masterfully calling it what it is. It's a bond. It's not free. It's not rest for her on the Sabbath day. Of all days, this would be a great day to do this because it it represents freedom, rest. She's been in bondage. She's been enslaved. She's been working, 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 if you will. And this would be a perfect day to help this image-bearer, Israelite woman, to no longer be bound by Satan. Jesus exposes them as being on the wrong side, affirming the devilish works of Satan, even though they may not have thought they were. Oh, and by the way, does Jesus break a sweat when he helps her? (laughs) No. He just speaks a word, and and based on other occasions, that's all he would have had to do, but he still wants to show his compassion, he touches her. No perspiration. No effort. No work. Verse 17. And as he said these things, all his adversaries were put to shame. And all the people rejoiced (laughs) at all the glorious things that were done by him. So before we move on, Just remember that Jesus cared so much for this woman that He was going to go against the grain. He cared so much for the other people that He was going to go against the grain. Can we say He cares so much for us He was going to go against the grain? Yeah. And expose falseness for what it is. And sometimes falseness disguises itself in the form of truth tellers, quoting Bible verses. Gotta remember that. And by the way, if the Jesus you're trusting in has no adversaries, He's different than this Jesus. The Jesus you proclaim and, and you, you tell of the good news message of Jesus, if there's no never any conflict, never any adversarial response, well, one thing you know for sure. It's not the Jesus of the Bible. It's not the Jesus who is the Messiah. But again, this is an act of care. It's an act of care and kindness. Let's go to number four. Because Jesus cares, he exposes shameful Bible interpretation. He exposes shameful Bible interpretation. And really, this is in verses 14 to 17, uh, the verses we just read, so we won't go over it again. Uh, just in passing, we should at least acknowledge that he does expose such kinds of, of shameful things. For a long time now, sinful people like us, sinful beings like us, have been using the Bible, God's holy, perfect, inspired, and errant word, to promote our own agendas. When we use it selectively, we, we we hijack the bible and slap chapter and verse to to make our arguments it's been going on since genesis 3 and it's good that we know that maybe done by sincere people followed by others who are sincerely following we should we should know that I say it too often, but you can make the Bible say anything, but you can 't make it say anything in its context. Um, it is good for us to um, know that there is danger and Jesus cares enough and by the way by the way they, they didn 't have to ch- quote the Bible verses because everybody knew the Bible verses. <laughs> I quoted the Deuteronomy text because we're not as biblically literate, generally speaking, uh, as they were. But he didn't have to quote them. Everybody knew Sabbath law. So we just need to be aware and know and we need to praise God and thank the Lord that when he was here on earth, he didn't affirm all uses of Scripture. He exposes the abuses of Scripture. And we need to know that. Isn't it interesting, in this, in this passage, it's, it's a, I think we can say, it's, a, it's an illegitimate um, literalness of Scripture that denies the greater context. I'm all for taking the Bible literally. But there's an inappropriate kind of literalness that denies the greater intent and context. Can't work, can't work, can't work. I can give you Bible verses, not just in one book of the Bible, but multiple books of the Bible. Well, whatever happened to the second greatest commandment, love your neighbor as yourself. Somehow that must play into things here. I mean, we could elaborate further, but maybe what we could remember is let's pay attention to these kinds of texts where Jesus exposes it. That might help us. And I think what it will help us to do is to, to, to keep in mind the greater picture, the greater context of a, of a chapter, of a book, of a testament, of a canon. How does this fit together? Because somehow it fits together. We can be inappropriately literal in our interpretation. And this is an occasion where that's the case. And in verse 17, they were put to shame. There's a shameful kind of Bible interpretation. And I'm sure I've been guilty of it before. And I'm sure most everyone has been guilty of it before. And so we try to read our Bibles and we try to read them in light of what Jesus says and in light of the Spirit of God working. Let's move on to another one. Because Jesus cares, He undoes the work of Satan. He undoes the work of Satan. We saw it in verse 16 when we read where it says, Satan bound this woman for 18 years. He stops what Satan had done for 18 years to this woman. And that, by the way, makes more sense in the bigger picture. Satan has bound this woman? Now, the ins and outs and how exactly has Satan done it to this woman? At least on a broad level kind of scale because the Bible doesn't say that every kind of sickness is somehow the devil and those kinds of things, Uh, one-to-one kind of correlation. I'm not going to get into all that this morning. But on a broad level, you could say, absolutely, this has been Satan, even if it wasn't an immediate level, even if it wasn't a Job kind of level where there is the one-to-one. You could generally say, in light of the fall, in light of who Satan is, I don't know which one it is, but I'm just trying to help you understand the bigger idea here. It could be in a Job kind of sense where it's one-to-one. But it doesn't have to be because in a broad, big, general sense, since the fall, Satan has been called things like the ruler of this world. John chapter 12, verse 31. John 14, 30. John 16, 11. He's the ruler of this fallen world. He has temporary dominion over this fallen world. And it's a world filled with with suffering and with death and difficulties and sickness. Since the fall, that's been true. And since the fall, Satan's been called the ruler of this world. How about uh, back in Luke chapter 4? We won't take the time to turn there. But back in Luke chapter 4, when Satan tempts Jesus, what does he offer him? He offers him the kingdoms of this world. So yes, God is ultimately sovereign, and ultimately uh, Satan is under his dominion and control. He's the ultimate sovereign. But in a lesser sense, during this time since the fall, Satan is called the ruler of this world. And this world is filled with death and suffering and difficulty. What does Jesus do? He, he undoes the works of the devil. He gives us a foretaste of what will become a full reality at a second coming. He gives us a foretaste of what will become a reality even as Jesus goes to the cross and defeats Satan, as he raises from the dead, defeats Satan. He returns at a second coming. He's going to execute the, the, the already secured defeat. But again, we get this taste. We get this preview of coming attractions. <laughs> That's what we get. Real life, objective, historical, tangible, with eyewitnesses, preview. Just some other text before we move on. John 8, 44, Satan is a murderer from the beginning. I like Luke chapter 11, verse 20, where Jesus casts out the demon and in light of what he does there, he says, The kingdom of God has come upon you. That's a great foretaste. You want to know if I'm the king? Look at what I just did. Kingdom of God. I'm the Messiah. First John chapter 3, verse 8. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. Yeah. And in the gospel accounts we see this is who Jesus is supposed to be according to the Old Testament. This is who He is. Yep. Yep. He cares so He shows us. Number six. Because Jesus cares He brings joy to the oppressed. He brings joy to the oppressed. We see on the unfolding of verses 14, 15, 16 and then how about verse 17. As He said these things all His adversaries were put to shame And here we go. Here's joy to the oppressed. All the people rejoiced at all the glorious things that were done by Him. Oh, He's shown us who He really is. He's the one. Joy and rejoicing. He's demonstrated. He hasn't just said it. He's given us the preview and He's demonstrated it. Joy and rejoicing. There is hope for us. This is awesome. How about this? Joy and rejoicing for all the things He's done? Dare we say that would even include exposing the false teachers and freeing them from their bondage? I think so. Oh, this is joyous and rejoicing and magnificent. We're now even shown how to apply the Bible legitimately. Oh, joy, rejoicing, amazing, awesome. Our joy is ignited is what's happening with these people and I love to even think about how joyous this is for us because there's all these different voices and all of these different opinions and all of the chatter and all the wondering and not to mention the stuff in my own head. What's going to give me that, that undoable, unending, stable, consistent joy through all of it? It's the works of Jesus. The sure works of Jesus, like these works, like greater works, in anticipation of His ultimate work, He would go to the cross and, and He would be raised from the dead and He would ascend and He would claim us as His own at His Father's right hand. Works of Jesus are what cause us as Christians to be rejoicing. It's rejoicing. I've, I've, got, I've got a level-headedness and, a, and an excitement and an enthusiasm that isn't Quenchable, even when the circumstances aren't so enthusiastic. There's joy and there's rejoicing. What's interesting too—it's not that he healed everybody who was there. I mean, maybe afterward he did. Not suggesting that he didn't, but but here this happened with this woman, and all the people are rejoicing. This is magnificent. This is wonderful because of what it means for all of us if he's really the Messiah. Isn't it good? it's awesome so as you think about your life and and your life is like this and sometimes it's like this (laughs) and we get some of this some of this more of this we would want it to be the works of Jesus igniting and fueling our joy We keep coming back to that because again, the works of Jesus are done. The works of Jesus are sure. Okay, number seven. Because Jesus cares, He teaches still more. He teaches still more. We're going to see this in verses 18 to 20. Just a quick setup and we'll do this um, rather easily. We could say this for a different sermon a different time because now he starts talking about the kingdom but there is a connector in verse 18 where he says he said therefore so we're going to put them with our same passage because they're linked here's what we would have a tendency to do here's what they would have a tendency to do if he's the Messiah and if he's the king the anointed one the Christ the long expected one that means that means Everything's gonna be restored and it's all gonna be restored right now. All the full blown promises of the kingdom are here. Don't go to work tomorrow. Right? I mean, this, this is, this, there should be that kind of enthusiasm. This is, this is it. And this lasts forever. This means restoration. This means cancel doctor's appointments. Right? I mean, this, this is, This is it. The forever and everlasting kingdom. And what Jesus does, because Jesus knows there's more things for Him to do even, including His cross work. There's more things for Him to do. And not only that, Jesus knows the fuller picture that actually these have been previews and the the fullness of these things, the entering into these things, actually won't come until His return. And so he needs to help them understand the kingdom better than they do because the knee-jerk reaction, and rightfully so, would be this is it and this is how it's always going to be and enough said. So he gives them a couple of kingdom parables to help them understand or, or illustrations that it's not going to be that way. So they're not confused. He cares enough to teach so that we're not confused so that they're not confused. Verse 18 says, He said, therefore, because he knows what they're going to be thinking, what is the kingdom of God like? And they might be saying, It's like this! <laughs> anyway, I couldn't stand it. I had to do it. <laughs> and to what shall I compare it? Verse 19. It is like a grain of mustard seed that a man took and sowed in his garden and it grew and became a tree and the birds of the air made nests in its branches. Well, what are you saying, Jesus? Jesus. Mustard seed would have been the last thing on my list. It's not powerful. It's not magnificent. It's not grand. It's very small. It's like a foretaste. But it becomes very big. Verse 20, and again he said, To what shall I compare the kingdom of God? It is like leaven, not very grand. Can't really see it. That a woman took and hid in three measures of flowers. Notice it's hidden. It's not clear for all to see. It's hidden until it was all leavened. Oh, so it's small, unseen, becomes great, undeniable reality. The seed, the great, undeniable, grandiose tree. The leaven hidden. Undeniable permeates huge, big, noticed. So he makes the point. He doesn't say anything else at this point in time. But we're at least helped in understanding there's something greater to come, and this isn't it. This isn't it. The Jesus of the Bible, the Jesus of history, the Jesus of authentic Christianity the Jesus who does all of these things, I just want you to know and be reminded, is the Jesus who cares. And so he's trustworthy. And we should be trusting him.